Please listen carefully. Welcome back to another episode of the Extra Buttery Podcast. It's been a bit of a quiet week on the movie and TV news front, but uh, we've got a few items lined up for you, including a feature interview with a good friend of uh, Jason and myself, which we'll get to a little bit later. But first up on the show, we're going to be talking about The Mummy, the first film in Universal's Dark Universe franchise that they're uh, trying to kick off. Then we'll take a look at the Black Panther trailer, which was uh, taking the internet by storm a few days ago. Following that, we'll look into the Snowpiercer TV show that's starting to pick up steam, pun completely intended. It's starting to add a few actors to the cast, and a few more details are emerging. But coming to you from Toronto, my name is Robert Snow, and joining me from Vancouver is my co-host Jason Chan. How's it going? What have you been up to? I've been good. <laughs> I always answer good when you ask me that question. I haven't been <laughs> up to much at all, actually. But uh, yeah, it's been, as you said, a quiet week at the movies. Um, the Mummy obviously did not arrive in theaters or did not make a huge splash in theaters like we all thought it would. I think, to me, that was a little surprising. Yeah, especially given like um, what we know about Tom Cruise as a star. You know, I mean, he's kind of, he's one of those A-list actors, a lot like Will Smith, who by this point in, in his career has kind of built up a reputation as a guy who can do no wrong. You know, if he's attached to a movie, you kind of expect it to uh, to at least do really well commercially, if not, you know, decently well critically. Yeah, well, commercially, I think it'll do fine overseas. I think for whatever reason, Tom Cruise just has a lot of pull, especially in Asia. Yeah, I was telling my mom that, you know, The Mummy wasn't getting good reviews, and she was surprised. She was like, what? How could a Tom Cruise movie get bad reviews with The Mummy and how great it looked in the trailers and everything? But I guess the main criticism with The Mummy is that it was too formulaic. It was very generic. It was obviously meant to serve this giant monster universe that with how poorly the mummy's doing kind of throws a wrench into things and you have to wonder if they're actually going to go through with this monster universe. I'd be surprised if uh, the folks over at Universal are are not in some sort of panic <laughs> or you could be panic, yeah, um, because they the, you know, I think they're going to they're going to pin a lot of their hopes on this new franchise on how it performs domestically and right now it's only at about like 35 million dollars which compared to Wonder Woman which opened two weeks ago, Wonder Woman has already made like something like $200 million domestically. So you just put that into perspective, like Wonder Woman made three times as much in its opening weekend, almost more than that, than The Mummy did in its opening weekend. So there's... For the second week in a row, Wonder Woman's back at the top. Yeah, of the so it's it, it's just, yeah, you know, it's dominating everything. And with Cars 3 coming out this weekend, uh, as well as a few other big, uh, big releases the next couple of weeks, like the mummy kind of, it's kind of lost out now. You know, it can't, it can't really hope to get back up to number one. So that's that's got to be having the folks over at Universal a little bit worried. Definitely. For, for you personally, is Tom Cruise like a big pull? I mean, yeah, I was um, when I remember when I saw the the trailer for this one. You know, I wasn't I wasn't super jazzed about the concept of a of another cinematic universe, but but I know right. I know that, well, that Tom Cruise up until now has been a, a known quantity. Like I'm I'm at least going to enjoy him in a movie if I 
don't enjoy the movie around him. For someone as prolific as Tom Cruise, I've always appreciated the fact that he's never really made a truly bad film. Like, there've obviously been there's obviously been some misses, but I think for the most part they're few and far between. And when it comes to like big set action pieces where there's a lot of stunts involved, I think he's still number one in Hollywood. Like he's a very traditional movie star in that sense, in that he is obviously very charismatic. There's a lot of action and, and stunts in his movies, and there's definitely the type of thrills that you want to see in a movie, mostly with like chase scenes. You know, he's very he's done a very good job with the chase scenes. I think it is a little unfortunate because there were probably other good things going for this movie. Yeah, exactly. I mean, like, um, well, even just looking at the trailer, you get the sense that it's kind of got the elements of Mission Impossible crammed into a, yeah, another a type bit. of movie. You know, they've got that big um, zero-G plane crash stunt that features so heavily in the trailer. And we kind of talked about this last week with, like, Tomb Raider and Uncharted. How do you make this movie specific to its own universe? How do you make it not so generic, you know? I think, uh, I mean, uh, again, having not seen it yet, I I can't be 100% sure, but it almost seems like uh, audiences didn't really know how to take Tom Cruise's character because, you know, he's very clearly in a, in a supernatural movie where he's not himself like the supernatural guy. He's not the, the one the movie's really about. Well, the other thing... I would point out is that Brendan Fraser's mummy back in the nineties, the late nineties, I thoroughly enjoyed. And I think there's, it has a very strong following. And I think the pushback towards Tom Cruise's mummy is pretty real. I think for a lot of people, the original Brendan Fraser movie had just the right amount of campiness, adventure, action and if you watch it today it's still actually quite entertaining the effects are obviously outdated very outdated i should say but for whatever reason the cruise's mummy i don't think has that charm it feels a little bleak like Mm, if you look at the the positive criticism for guardians of the galaxy and wonder woman was that hey it had some really light-hearted moments yeah whereas for the for a large part of the dceu and for a large part of a lot of movies recently, is that they're too dark, they're too grim, they're too violent. I think people forget that we go to theaters to escape. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And maybe the mummy, the mummy didn't allow us to escape. It almost felt that we visited that universe before, and that we weren't interested in going back. Which isn't to say, to say that there there isn't compelling stories to be told. No, in that, no, of in course that, not. In that Universal Monsters canon, you know, you mean uh, this is a, a lineup of characters that includes Frankenstein's monster, uh, the Bride of Frankenstein, the Invisible Man, the Wolfman, uh, Dracula at certain points. Even though, weirdly, what I what I thought about the Dark Universe was that Luke Evans' Dracula Untold movie was actually going to be counted as part of it, but it's not. That's that's something else. Really. So oh. there is no, as far as I can tell, there is no Dracula in this lineup that they're they're currently pushing for. But they do have Johnny Depp as the Invisible Man and Javier Bardem as uh, Frank. I think it's Frankenstein's monster. So oh, that's funny because uh, Tom Cruise played a vampire back in the day. Yeah, yeah, in um, uh, in vampire the Anne, Diaries, Vampire Diaries, the the Anne Rice uh, adaptation. Right. Uh, 
So, I mean, which that movie was uh, was pretty enjoyable. I mean, it had Brad Pitt in it. it had but like, it was so different kind too, of thing. Though. Oh yeah, very. I mean, very much based in that kind of gothic romance or southern gothic kind of uh, flavor, you know, because it's set in in Louisiana. Yeah, it's not a it's not a summer blockbuster. No, like no. This one is. Uh, so yeah, maybe maybe there just wasn't a a very identifiable tone or quality to this one that really jumped out at people. Usually I say sequels are kind of like unnecessary films that they just make for whatever reason. And I think the mummy kind of falls into that trap, even though it's supposed to be the first in a set in a series of movies. Yeah. It just feels like something we've, we've seen like, or it feels like a, a conglomeration of parts of other things. Yeah. And of course, like, because I think both of us are a little more plugged into the movie industry than most people are. I think we understood Universal's need to have, like, a huge franchise. Oh, yeah, from a financial perspective, you know. Yeah, so we kind of obviously went in with our eyebrows raised, going, like, I know why you did this movie. And I know there are certain things that you do in movies because you think it makes more money. And I don't always agree with the things that you do. It'll be interesting to see if they're actually going to build up the rest of the universe. I think at some point, if they have another failure they're gonna say you know what we might as well cut our losses and move on to the next thing which is what we're gonna do because that's a really good tie-in into black panther yeah because the trailer just dropped a couple of days ago and before we go any further here's a clip the world is changing soon there will only be the conquered and the conquerors. Step into the spotlight. You are a good man. Step into the spotlight. With a good heart. I mean, I'll be honest, the, the Marvel trailers kind of come and go, and, you know, they, they build up a decent amount of, of excitement when they initially drop, but I think there was something different about this one, and it probably... Because there's no Iron Man. <laughs> That's the difference. <laughs> there's no Tony Stark or Robert Downey Jr. lurking around the corner, yeah. As long as we're uh, we're being honest here, the reason is the, the movie is breaking a few stereotypes down pretty pretty obviously right out of the gate. You know, they're, they're having a superhero film with that size and budget, uh, anchored by a black lead actor and with a cast that's almost predominantly like I think there's maybe two white actors in the in the whole cast. I think people watching the trailer had a very visceral reaction to that because up until recently we've we haven't seen a lot of movies with all black casts at all. Well, we have. It's just they've never been mainstream. Yeah, I mean, mo- like Moonlight was the first one to get a lot of awards recognition uh, to win Best Picture to uh, to have like a black director and have. The, the cast be almost entirely black, but now this is like a major Hollywood production um, in a large in a in a larger canon that doesn't have any films like this right now. Right. So like I agree with the blockbuster part, but I would say it's significant because it's the first black movie that doesn't deal with street life and gangs. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah, that's an important part too. Movies yeah. with predominantly black cast and a black director in the past have gotten a lot of recognition. So Menace to Society, for one, really good film, maybe back in the '90s, the Ice Cube era, the not the '90s. Yeah, Spike Lee stuff. Yeah, yeah. So there have been a lot. It's just we haven't seen anything on this scale. Much like Wonder Woman, 
how we haven't seen a female-directed, female-led blockbuster movie at this scale. That's that's sort of what I was driving at. Is like it's the it's the scale and the recognition and the the money that's being put into it. Right, right. I think there have been plenty of excellent, excellent films made by black directors with black cast, but a lot of them I think dealt with thug life. You know, mm, like yeah. John Singleton movies, Spike, as you mentioned, Spike Lee and all that stuff. What kind of interested me most about Black Panther was the soundtrack. Did you get a like kind of like a Luke Cage vibe to it? How they had like the hip hop in the background and it was really engaging. But with like an electronic kind of remix. Yeah, a little yeah. bit. And I'm glad they didn't show much. I know this was just a teaser and we're going to get like three or four more trailers in the end. But I hope they keep much of the story under wraps. And I think if you don't know much about the Black Panther lore, like I don't, I think it's better that we're kept in the dark. I hope they don't go into exposition in the trailers because that would just totally ruin the whole thing. Because that's what they did with Spider-Man and it's ruining it. I liked how choosy they were with the details they put into this trailer. I think there's there's a lot to explore in this movie. But it doesn't come out for another, over a year, so there's still... Um... Plenty of chances to screw it up. Yes, I agree. <laughs> as, we, as we've seen. But one thing that I kind of hope that doesn't get screwed up, just because I'm kind of close to the original or the movie that it's based on is the the new TNT show based on Snowpiercer uh, from 2013. Incidentally uh, called Snowpiercer. Just, yeah, Snowpiercer. <laughs> uh, but this is, this is a production that's being put together by, it's being directed by Scott Derrickson, who actually directed Doctor Strange, the Marvel film from November. And... So far, they're they're putting together a cast kind of slowly, but uh, it looks like David Diggs is going to be playing the uh, the lead, and he's gonna. It sounds like he's going to be in a very kind of similar role to uh, the guy that Chris Evans played in the original film. You know, he's going to be uh, living on this train that is sheltering the last remnants of humanity. Um, it never stops searching forward on this endless loop of track, trying to keep its occupants warm. And the train is, is divided up by classes. So the folks in the back of the, the train are living in abject poverty. They just like jelly squares of some horrible concoction. And as you go further and further up towards the, the front of the train, that's where all of the, the super wealthy people live. So eventually the conditions in the rear of the train get to the point where it inspires a rebellion. And the folks in the back of the train try to fight their way forward. It'll be kind of cool to see how they handle the, the the premise of the film in the format of a TV show, like how they stretch it out to, I'm sure it could be done, but to kind of find new ways to, to fill in episodes and build self-contained episodes so that they don't run out of, run out of time. Like, you know, you're not kind of like snapping your fingers, hoping for them to finally get to the front of the train, you know, a couple of episodes in. I don't know. What like what what do you make of uh, of this project? That's interesting because I have like a few different thoughts from you. First of all, good job. Like <laughs> way to summarize the movie. Nice job. <laughs> <laughs> um I was gonna say that I don't think each episode will be self-contained. It may in the sense that it may wrap up a subplot in that episode, but the larger plot is what goes on on that train, right? So I think we're going to have kind of like 24 where each episode kind of ends on a cliffhanger and they 
and it's a series that you'll have to watch continuously to understand his progression through the train because you're progressing literally through the plot as he progresses up the train. I think there is a lot of stuff to be flushed out, especially if there's going to be a lot of... If it expands on ideas about class and race and, and wealth and society and order. Um, and attached to the project is Jennifer Connelly, who I think I first saw her in um, Labyrinth with David Bowie. And so and she's gone on to have like a very varied and quite illustrious career. And... Um, for those who don't know, like away from the film, she's always been quite outspoken politically. And I imagine maybe the, the show's thesis and thoughts on politics and all that stuff is probably something that appeals to her. So I imagine it's going to be quite self-reflective at times, but the only thing is, I hope it doesn't become preachy because it runs that the danger of becoming, you know, of having the character being all good when clearly in the movie it shows that not everyone is all good or all bad. I think that's a very interesting element to have. Well, I mean, continuing on with the casting theme, we just learned that Godzilla is adding another actress to its cast. I think we briefly mentioned this on a previous episode, but the first person to really be attached to this was the star of Stranger Things, Millie Bobby Brown. But now they've added uh, Thomas Middleditch, who a lot of people will know from Silicon Valley. And they've brought in, apparently Ken Watanabe is is going to be back. He's one of the only returning members of the original cast. Uh, who else Who else have they added now? Because I think they've made a couple of casting. How can you forget my favorite, Kyle Chandler? <laughs> Come on. Right. How can you forget about Kyle? I, he's like the star of every movie. Is he, well, I can love the guy. He's the perfect blue collar guy, I guess. Maybe that's he just blends in too well for me. He's going to be Millie Bobby Brown's dad. Definitely. Definitely. <laughs> yeah. So I have trouble pronouncing her English name because it's so weird. But Zhang Ziyi. So Zhang Ziyi. Oh, yes. Yeah. The girl from Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. She's been cast in that Godzilla film. And normally I would say casting a big Asian name is just a way to get Chinese butts in the seats, just as that poor Asian girl in Kong Skull Island that was in the movie, but practically didn't do anything. <laughs> yeah. Because Godzilla is Asian, I am kind of glad. It's actually quite well represented. You got a Japanese guy in Watanabe and you got a Chinese girl in Zhang Ziyi. So yeah. Uh, then again though, Rob, as we've talked before when we watched Godzilla, how much of Godzilla is actually in Godzilla? This is the thing, right? Because I can't remember the exact figure, but there was a supercut made not long after Godzilla came out in 2014, and somebody basically took every scene where you actually see Godzilla in the frame, and it added up to a pretty like embarrassingly low number. Um, <laughs> in the, yeah, because I mean, the film is like is easily over two hours. But, As this one will be too. Yeah, but but you only see Godzilla. I think the total amount of screen time is less than twenty minutes. Um, right? And Wasn't it like eleven? It could be eleven. Yeah, it was. It was something like that. But like 
in the broader scheme of things, I can understand, you know, he it's a super expensive character to render and it takes a lot of digital artists a lot of time to do, but... And I also understand Godzilla because they were trying to build up this monster, right? It was kind of like Jaws, like the threat you don't see. Yeah, like we don't want to see him, yeah, right away. Yeah, I understand that. Um, and, and to a point, that was pretty effective because they, they waited a long time until you see him full body in the movie and it is pretty cool when you do see him, but... Just based on how they're structuring the cast for this one, you know, they're they're only bringing back Watanabe as the what seems like the only guy from the original story, which means they now have to build up backstories and character motivations for all of these new folks who are joining the cast. So that suggests that we're going to be seeing a lot of human actors, a lot of human screen time, and maybe not as much monster stuff as we really want. And considering the fact that he that Godzilla is apparently going to be doing battle with either Mothra or King Ghidorah, who are two of the fan favorite Godzilla enemies, I mean, why can't we just have that? Like, maybe make the effects cheaper if if it means getting more screen time. This is why I'll always love Pacific Rim. Guillermo del Toro was like, "Listen, it's a movie about giant robots and giant monsters fighting each other, and goddamn it, and they're both going to be on the screen for like half the movie." So, like, you go into Godzilla, a movie subtitled King of the Monsters, and you're like, why the hell am I watching a bunch of humans talking for, like, 90 minutes? Yes, absolutely. (laughs) You know? Like, you have to be really honest about what you are. And, I mean, I get it. You know, there's always been a human component to the Godzilla movies, but it's always been the weakest component. I mean, even now that Toho has brought back the Godzilla character, like the rubber suit version of Godzilla, in the Japanese language Godzilla films. Shin Godzilla. They, yeah, they made this Shin Godzilla film last year. But the main criticism I heard about that, again, was that the the human characters, like, nobody cares about their little personal dramas or, or anything. It's like, give us Godzilla all the time. That's what we bought the ticket for. That's why Pacific Rim was fantastic. Just have fun with it, dude. I, I mean, I don't want to say put Guillermo del Toro in charge of a Godzilla movie because he's kind of, like, kind of like making a lot of great stuff all the time, and I don't want to distract him. <laughs> Leave the genius alone. <laughs> yeah, just let him let him make a like. He's making so many original movies, like based on his own scripts. Like, he can. We don't need to give him random Hollywood sequels. Changing tracks into something completely different, but no less awesome, is the fact that David Fincher's new project, Mindhunter has popped up in the news again. We saw a trailer for this a few months ago. They put together a pretty good teaser, like they weren't giving a whole lot away for this project, but now it's been given a release date of uh, mid-October on Netflix. And a second season. And a second second season, like right out of the gate. We haven't even seen any of the episodes yet, but we know that Netflix is, is already committed to it. So David Fincher is going to be directing the first two episodes. I guess he's got a creative team lined up to, uh, to jump in and uh, take care of the rest of them for him. But... You saw the trailer pretty recently, so what did what did you make of it? So, for those that don't know, Mindhunters is a work of fiction, but it's based on people in real life. It's based on two FBI investigators that basically came up with the foundation of criminology and serial killers on FBI profiling as we know today. From the trailer, I got the sense that it was very dark, it was violent, it was definitely rated R. Like, there are elements of it, I think, that are only targeted, you know, meant for adults. But it's very interesting because it operates in an era that I've always been very fond of, which is kind of like America's as it's coming into America as we know it. 
And there was a lot of a sense that a lot of these killings and these murders would be grisly. I mean, granted, it's about serial killers, but I get almost a sense that it will be really similar in tone to Hannibal, which was like a notoriously gory and grisly and, and bloody oh, yeah. show. Yeah, Blo- like- so bloody and gory that it that I abandoned it um, right before the final season because yeah. I just... I couldn't sit through it that much longer. Yeah, it kind of it crossed a line for you. It did. And it wasn't because of one particular scene, but it would had built up to it had already built up to so much that I, I didn't need to see, you know, a maimed body at every episode. It felt a little exploitative to me, but again, because maybe I binge-watched it, that made a difference. But it was just, it was too much. Yeah, you kind of overloaded on it. Yeah, exactly. I'd, I'd hesitate to call myself like a David Fincher fan. Like, I really like his work. I really respect him as a director, but I don't, I don't like drool over his stuff. Why not? I don't know. Like, I, uh, maybe it's, maybe it is that his, his comfort level with the grizzly, with the, uh, the extreme violence. Like, there were parts of Gone Girl, for example. Like, I love the mystery. I love the, uh, the twist in it and all of that. But mm-hmm. the, like the material towards the end before Amy comes home and like her scenes with Neil Patrick Harris is character. I, I almost like I sympathize with well, where you got with Hannibal, like it kind of built up and built up. And then I thought I, I was finally like, all right, just I get it. She's she's a psychopath. What did you think of uh, Girl with the Dragon Tattoo then? Oh, I actually I really liked Girl with the Dragon Tattoo as a both as an adaptation and just as a film. I um, it just so happens that like I had watched the whole Swedish series of, of films uh, beforehand. And I haven't read the the Millennium books myself by Stieg Larsson, but there's something about like Swedish-based uh, crime fiction that I really dig. So the fact that it was a series that I was already, a series and a story I was already familiar with and then being executed by a guy like Fincher who has so much attention to detail and who I, I really respect as an artist, even though sometimes his content is hard to look at. <laughs> yes, yes. Along with David Fincher, who's executive producer, uh, Charlize Theron is also an executive producer. Oh, I didn't know that. Okay. Yes, and it's going to star Jonathan Groff and Holt McCallany, two guys that I like. I think people just don't really know, as John Douglas and Robert Ressler, who are real-life... Yeah, life, and these are two real-life... Yeah, FBI yeah. Behavior Science Unit guys, special agents. And Anna Torv is going to play a psychologist who is also based on a real psychologist, Dr. Anne Wolbert Burgess. Oh, yeah. Okay. I like Anna Torv. I was a I was a big Fringe fan for the run of that show. So I think it's shaping up to be maybe not a hit, but a potential sleeper hit. Like this is a yeah, series like that slow could burn. really, yeah, slow burn its way into like award season maybe I'm, i know i'm really getting ahead of myself this is the type of show where i think can draw a large audience real life serial killers and mystery and drama i i think it hits all the notes yeah it hits all the notes and it's coming at a really good time of the trends on netflix as well because we've seen true crime be a rapidly popular subgenre on netflix recently you have like making a murderer amanda knox uh, the new show, The Keepers, which just uh, which just hit Netflix a couple of weeks ago, and even like uh, off of Netflix, like uh, a podcast like Serial, like there's this mm-hmm. real thirst right now for stories about cold cases that attract these like brilliant detectives and are finally cracked after 
after a long period of time and also paired with like pretty grisly murders as well mm-hmm. like there's there's always like a there's a there's a salaciousness there so it's there's some potential there for Mindhunter to kind of even though it's it's a fictionalized version of real life to still tap into that audience that's just been gobbling up these uh, non-fiction shows uh, yeah uh, but also in the TV world we've got Twin Peaks which we've been promising to talk about here on Extra Buttery for yes. a number of weeks now have you had a chance to, to see any of the episodes yet? I've always been a fan of the original but I have not seen an episode of the new one. I do like Twin Peaks but I wouldn't consider myself like part of the cult <laughs> or like a huge follower How much of it do you remember though? Like, How long ago do you think it was? I remember more about how it made me feel, which was uneasy. Okay, that's good. That's good. Yeah, which is like a very, I think, David Lynch thing, right? The thing with Lynch is that he meanders a lot. Mm. So when you first watch Twin Peaks, you're like, okay, this is like a pretty straightforward murder mystery. It's this weird town, weird people. I get it. And then, bam, all sorts of like supernatural stuff happens and like... Who was the main character? Was it uh, Dylan McDermott? Who was the lead in the... No, it's uh, Kyle McLaughlin. Kyle McLaughlin, sorry. Yeah, so he he plays a very good, like, he has a very good deer-in-the-headlights look, I say. At first, yeah, like you... Yeah, at first, yeah. And you really go on this journey with him. Um, and then eventually the story is solved, um, which is, I think, kind of rare for a David Lynch film, even though there are a lot of things that obviously he, he never wrapped up or, or tied the loose ends for yeah and it became a bit controversial at the time because the uh they they decided to solve the murder with um a lot of pressure from the the bosses on the at the network that twin peaks was airing uh, airing on at the time and a lot of fans felt that the episodes that followed were kind of without purpose uh so the like 25 years later uh, showtime comes along and they're like they say to david lynch all right we'll give you all the money in the world to make the follow-up to this show that you've been thinking about. And this is actually a good opportunity to to bring in our good friend, Robin Levinson King, because I had a chance to sit down with her recently to, to go into a really deep dive into this show. So when we come back, we'll talk to Robin about Twin Peaks The Return and what it has to offer fans and maybe some advice on how to get into the show if you haven't already. Welcome back to the Extra Buttery Podcast. As promised, this is our big discussion on Twin Peaks, the famously weird David Lynch TV show. And I'm joined today by Robin Levison King. She's a journalist here in Toronto and a good friend of Jason and myself. We go back to Carleton University in Ottawa together. Thanks for being on the show today, Robin. Thanks for having me. So you're here today to help me cover this dense television production Twin Peaks just now back for season three after a 25 year break maybe let's just kick it off by talking about what did you think of the episodes you've seen so far does it live up to the kind of massive fan anticipation for me it did I think that the episodes have been a little bit slow moving in a way that the original series maybe 
started off with a bit more of a bang. You know, it started off with Laura Palmer's dead. We're going to solve her murder. The new series is a lot, leaves a lot more questions unanswered, but I, I think that that's really great. I've really enjoyed kind of the pacing of the first few episodes and the sort of slow reintroduction into Lynch's universe, which is a, a pretty particular kind of universe. How did you get into Twin Peaks? I think I got into Twin Peaks because a friend of mine liked it and he had gotten the DVD and it was a friend from back home. I'm originally from Boston and I remember I was there for the summer. I went over to his house. A bunch of people were over and he said, you have to watch this thing. It's called Twin Peaks. And he tried to explain it and it didn't make any sense. But honestly, I think it was hooked in the first episode. I just had to see more. Now, you were actually the person who got me into Twin Peaks. And I think you had the full DVD box set and somehow it came up in conversation and then you gave it to me and then I spent a few months getting into it. I don't know. I mean, for me, there's something about... I think I've always had an interest in... Uh, surrealism as like a general artistic category and I think the the bits of Twin Peaks that kind of get to that surrealist thing where it's it goes beyond just like the supernatural it just goes into the absurd sometimes that's what really spoke to me I think when you first queue up the pilot episode you're invited into this northwest United States town thinking that it's going to be a standard murder mystery and it gets clear pretty quickly that this is a very strange place. Like you've got a a lady who speaks to a log that she carries around with her. You've got mysterious Aboriginal mythology that kind of infects the town. You've got strange interactions between characters that don't feel like any kind of normal social interaction, like stuff that if it happened to you in real life, it would make you want to like run the other way. But these characters treat it as completely normal. Like they don't, they don't really pick up on the strangeness of it. Would you say that's something that Lynch has kind of made a career out of? Like, are you familiar with some of the feature films he's directed? Yeah, I've seen a, I've seen a bunch of Lynch films, and I've seen, and I love Blue Velvet, which also has Kyle MacLachlan. So no, I think the Twin Peaks takes a bit from Blue Velvet, but it goes in a different direction. It has a lot more uh, horror elements than Blue Velvet, and it has a lot more sort of nightmarish sur- surrealness necessarily than Blue Velvet, which is, I, I would say, more of a gangster film and more of sort of a, a violent, bloody crime drama. Mm-hmm. But what both Blue Velvet and Twin Peaks are about is they're about the the rottenness beneath the surface. Yeah, like it, it takes like a, it introduces what might be an idyllic kind of environment on the surface and then shows that nobody who lives there is actually has a heart of gold like everyone's got secrets everyone's got some some sort of corruption it's like if you crossed a murder mystery with a soap opera with sort of a neo-noir it has all those three different elements together and the plot doesn't really matter what matters is how these elements kind of interact with each other and i think that what lynch does with that is he makes you think about these very familiar genres in different ways because it's a soap opera so you're expecting camp and you're expecting melodrama but then also there's a totally surreal strange horror moment that comes out of this sort of banal 90s looking low budget production Lynch has kind of made a career out of purposefully throwing people for a loop like more I would say more so than a lot of working directors he he has a reputation for 
like introducing little tidbits, whether they're like bits of dialogue or um, special effects or things. And I think with with the vast majority of other bits of popular culture, as an audience, we expect to have lingering questions answered. But with Lynch, he's perfectly fine with like never answering any questions. I think the show works best when it's not explaining things. I liked that about, you know, to go back into the new season, I liked that about the first two episodes, which is that they left a lot unexplained and a lot of questions open. And I think that that's really exciting. There is a movie in between first and second season and Firewalk with Me, and um, it gets a bad rap. I think it's actually a pretty okay movie, except what I didn't like about it was that he tried to tell you all these things that you already kind of knew. And he was showing you, you know, the tawdry details of Laura Palmer's last few days. And we already kind of learned that in the first two seasons. So I didn't know why we were watching it again as a feature film. Yeah, yeah. And I'm glad that I think the new season isn't making that mistake. It's it's really taking us on a new mystery, and it's leaving more questions unanswered than answered. It might, it might be a bit of an understatement to say that in the new episodes, we didn't really get what I think we expected, even from Lynch. Like, there's things going on there even in the first episode of the new series, of the new season, that we were like, uh, what? Huh? Like this, it was it was weird even for for Twin Peaks. Would you would you agree with that, or do you think it's actually par for the course? I thought the first two episodes, the pace was a lot darker, and the tone was a lot darker, and the pace was a lot slower than you're used to with the original series. And that threw me for a bit of a loop. You kind of have to just sit and and watch it. There's a lot of sort of pregnant pauses with some low foreboding music underneath, and that's the whole scene. I thought that the next two episodes, next three episodes, were a nice sort of return to form where they brought a bit of the humor back in, Yeah, brought a bit of the shifting tones. Because I think that's what I liked about, again, to go back to tone, I think that's what I liked about the original series is that you never knew what you were going to watch. Were you going to watch a funny scene? Were you going to watch a sexy scene? Were you going to watch a scary scene? And I think that the first two episodes of the new season were a bit more consistent. He started playing around with it a lot more later on. Was there anything about it, about the new block of episodes that frustrated you? Did Lynch's direction or the script or any of it, did it ever go too far and you were like, all right, just give me something to, something to chew on here. Like a bit of story or, or, you know, uh, did you, did you ever like check out a little bit or were you with it the whole time? You know, I'm trying to think. I think I kind of loved it all. I kind of think that like watching Twin Peaks, you just have to go along for the ride, even if it's going to be bad. Like you're you're in this yeah. to enjoy it. Yeah. So even if it's a weird subplot, like I don't know, how do you feel about Michael Sarah's character? He was kind of spoiled for me in the sense that I think I saw a photo of him or like a still from that scene pop up on Twitter the day I watched the episode. So I already knew that he was going to appear in this kind of Marlon Brando from uh, The Wild Bunch. Was it The Wild Bunch or The Wild Ones? That, that cla- I think it's The like Wild a, Bunch. The Wild Bunch. Uh, that, that classic Brando motorcycle film from the 50s, I think it was. So I already knew that like that was what they were going to do with his character. I didn't expect the kind of Brando-esque mumbling uh, monologue that he does, but it's still, like compared to the episodes that had come before it, it still felt in keeping with everything else that had happened like it was no weirder than the strange uh black painted ghost guy that evaporates out of the jail cell you know like which is played for a complete non sequitur and it was no stranger than 
even like the weird sequence i think it's the beginning of episode two where uh cooper is in that strange metal cube like prison area and there's a really pulsing music track he runs into the woman whose eyes have like grown over with skin she has oh yeah eyes. i loved that sequence yeah and, he, <laughs> and then he climbs out on, onto like the the roof of the place and she falls off and then he looks down and he sees major briggs's head float by in sort of an astral projection like yeah that was None, none of those things are any weirder than the than the other thing. And I love the surreal elements, and I actually think that the new season is getting to, I guess, like the existential issues a bit more readily than the original series, and that's kind of interesting, and I like that. Like this weird woman with no eyes, the red in the red dress. Is she part of the Black Lodge? Is she like on yeah. another plane? I don't know. Super creepy. And like, who is the person pounding on the door? And then. Right, who's this like unseen monster that they had to run away from? I don't think you need to know, though. I think it's just about that moment, that that fear that Cooper feels, and you're supposed to feel that too. In the absence of a driving kind of plot, like there, you you could say that Cooper's goal is to further explore the Black Lodge. Like at least he has a goal in the scene, but there's no uh, other than that, he has no clear objective. There's no uh, murder mystery to solve, like there were in the in the, the first episodes from the first two seasons, there's no real dialogue being exchanged for long portions of it. So in those ways, the show is, the, the new episodes are very different because it kind of just goes from one existential moment to another, one heavily symbolic moment to another. But I don't know, it still, it still feels like it kind of goes together in spite of that. And it still has some standard plot mysteries that are gonna keep you watching like you want to know what happens to the high school principal who's on the hook for uh his mistress's murder yeah like i totally want to know what happens with that yeah and you want to know why like doppel cooper shot the wife of the high school principal right did she like what do you think do you think that she did she hire doppel cooper cooper doppel cooper that's what i'm calling him i don't even know if that's accurate (laughs) i call him dark cooper dark cooper yeah. She, did she hire the doppelganger to kill her husband's lover? And then Dark Cooper just like wanted to mess with her, so he framed her death on her other level. I, I don't. Yeah. I don't know. It's very. Or, but she seemed to know who he was when she saw him in. in That's her what. House. Like, so did she hire him? Yeah. I don't know. I feel like the spirit of Mike has like really undergone his own personal evolution if you think about what he was like when he was inhabiting Leland like he had one MO which was to rape and murder his own daughter which you know isn't great but also now (laughs) he seems to have gone another step forward where he's like a serial killer yeah or like the grim reaper himself or something like that he reminded me a lot of Billy Bob Thornton's character in the the first season of Fargo. Oh yeah, just yeah. like this menace, this... this unexplained but dangerous, and kind of almost a, a means for the the show to affect violence without pinning it on a particular character. What do you make of where we where we've currently left the real Cooper? Because he's kind of popped out of that uh, electrical outlet. And I'm sure for anybody who's listening to this segment right now and hasn't watched these episodes, this must sound incredibly strange. I think it's really interesting because, first of all, it's taken us really far out of Twin Peaks Mm -hmm. for a central character to be all the way over in Las Vegas as opposed to, you know, 
upstate Washington. Yeah. I think that's really interesting. And it gives him more obstacles because ultimately, you know, I think the show is about Cooper's journey. And now he has to solve a new task. And that's going to be to get his memories back, yeah. to figure out his purpose, to get back to Twin Peaks. Yeah. And so, yeah, the you know, this interlude is a bit weird, but it's kind of great because it's, it's giving him more sort of material to work through. Yeah. And in a way, I mean, and this just kind of occurred to me as, as we were talking, but um, I think going back to season two of Twin Peaks, the one that a lot of fans, a lot of critics kind of go in on for how the network kind of forced them to solve the mystery of the murder of Laura Palmer. And I think a lot of fans felt that after that point, the show lost its sense of purpose. It it did introduce a few new characters and tried a few new things, but Cooper didn't have that driving mystery to solve anymore. So now it's almost like Cooper is kind of, he's disabled in some way, you know, he... Uh, he can't remember things. He can't really carry on a conversation or really do anything without being pointed in that direction physically by by people. But he's being given something that's at least a bigger challenge than where he was after he solved Laura Palmer's murder. Yeah, I think I think it's it's good to Cooper is a very capable man. You need to give him something to do, even if it's as simple as like getting your tie on and um, learning how to drink coffee again. What's like the biggest question, I guess, that uh, that you're asking right now? Like, wh- which uh, thread is the most confusing to you? Or- so I want to know what that cube is, who is running it, how is it connected to Twin Peaks? That's a big question for me, and I think partly because I just thought I loved that whole sequence with the young sort of couple fooling around. Yeah. I just thought that whole exchange was spot on, just creepy. You didn't know who the villain was. I thought the actress is Madeline Zima. I thought she had like killed the guard maybe for a little bit. Yeah, yeah. But then she gets killed. So I don't think she, you know, who yeah. knows? I thought maybe she yeah. was a spy. And that's just, you, you just never know what anyone's motivations are going into yeah. these scenes. And I, and I loved the tension in that scene. Yeah. And then sort of the silliness of, oh, they're just kids making, like, you know, it was yeah. almost a relief when, when she took off her clothes. Because it was like, oh, great. Like, they're just going to make out. This isn't. Yeah. She didn't she's not going to murder him. But, but then, then it, but but then it turned. <laughs> yeah. But well actually I mean that that scene is kind of out of everything we've seen so far and with like we've had the uh the scenes in like South Dakota and Nevada now, but I think that scene has the most potential because it hints at a much larger conspiracy or organization something that's going on compared to all the other stuff. Like something that's even far more broad than like the Black Lodge, White Lodge stuff from Twin Peaks. So like, uh, we're in New York, we're in this, there's apparently like somebody with a lot of money who's paying for it. And there's also probably like the most overt example of like a supernatural monster that the show has ever had. Yeah, I think, well, that and the and the Black Smoke Man. Yeah, yeah. That's what's interesting about the series is that Lynch is going more sort of like full on horror mm-hmm. in that yeah. way. And that's, and that's, that's an interesting choice. Yeah. That's maybe, I don't know, maybe that's the part I like the least. I like the kind of dream sequences that were part of yeah, the original. The less, yeah, the less like overtly gory or, um, do you think that, you know, now that, uh, now that the show is on a cable network and a cable network that's also got a streaming kind of platform with Showtime, do you think that the creative freedom that Lynch has been given in that environment 
is almost allowing him to achieve like the more perfect version of Twin Peaks that he couldn't get when he was on a network back in the 90s with obviously like stricter rules about nudity and gore and cursing and, and content. I don't know if it's a more perfect version of Twin Peaks. I think that Lynch is not somebody who deals well with networks and production. You know, I think he's somebody who deals, who works best and is happiest when he is given all the money and all the freedom that he wants. And so if we want to watch Twin Peaks in this day and age, like that's what needs to happen. But honestly, I loved the original series, even the bad episodes. <laughs> I still, I still really enjoyed them. So, yeah. you know, and I, and I like network TV. I think that some directors work really well in these constraints. I don't think having an actress take off her clothes really adds anything to the plot. No, yeah. Um, I don't think cursing really adds anything to the plot. You know, if that's how he, if that's what he, the choice he wants to make, I say, like, let it make it. Yeah. I think he's earned that. We haven't seen, oh God, I'm blanking on her name. The one who's played by Sherilyn Fan. Audrey. Audrey, yes. Yes, we haven't seen Audrey. I think that's going to be a big moment for me as a mega Audrey fan. And they, I really hope they bring in like the Audrey theme music. Yes, again. it needs Audrey theme music. Yeah, that kind of like slinky, uh, Pink Panther-esque kind of thing. Yeah. Um, I hope, you know, as a fan and a woman, I hope they still let her be sexy. I hope they don't like say, oh, you're over, you're over 40. So we're just gonna, we're just gonna pretend that you aren't a sex pod anymore. Oh, yeah. I feel like Audrey deserves to be always a sex pod. I don't know how deep into the fan theories you've gotten just in like in uh, since you've watched the episodes, but probably one of the coolest fan theories that I've read so far is that Audrey is actually the billionaire who's financing the cube room in New York. And that that is like pretty cool. Like if they if whenever they decide to pull the curtain back on who's running that operation, if it's Audrey, that would be super cool. It would, that would like, as a fan, that would like link back to the greater mystery. It would give her like more agency in the whole thing. I mean, I think that like Lynch always treated the Audrey character like he always gave her a lot of agency. She was kind of the mm-hmm. one. The besides Cooper, she was the one who got the closest to solving the mystery. Right. Yeah. So I I believe she could be running that running that box. Mm-hmm. Was there anything in the Black Lodge scenes that really jumped out at you? Like- I kind of like the politics of the Black Lodge, where I think at first when you start learning about the Black Lodge, you think that it is like an omnipotent presence or an omnipotent force of maybe evil yeah. in the world. And then you realize that actually it might be evil, but it's not omnipotent. And all the people in all the sort of entities in the Black Lodge are just as, I would say, confused and sort of like tied to the rules of the universe as humans are. Yeah. So, you know, Bob doesn't want to go back. That's a struggle for Bob. Just (laughs) (laughs) You have the one-armed man was possessed and he didn't, and the spirit kind of didn't want to kill anymore or he didn't want to kill anymore. It got all, I think it's, I think what's interesting about the Black Lodge is it really is kind of like an alternative plane. It's not a higher plane. I right. think that's it's what, not an afterlife or like a, a right. heaven or a, or even something like a hell. It's kind of like a a purgatory of some kind. Yeah, I think I think Lynch really tries to avoid like simple metaphors. You think about other shows that followed Twin Peaks, that or at least the first two seasons that owe a big debt to it, like Lost or uh, more recently uh, The Leftovers. You can make the argument that certainly Lost was was always reaching for a a very familiar kind of Christian symbolism in the 
weird islands dimensions mm-hmm. there was always there there was something familiar in it and i mean you know you're a big gloss fan yeah big time, so yeah. one of the things that i found frustrating with lost that i like about twin peaks is that lost i thought especially at the end tried to wrap everything up a little too neatly mm-hmm. yeah i'd agree with that actually i mean even even from a fan's perspective yeah there was there, there was problems with the way they did it um, or certainly with the the speed they did it at well, and I think it's sort of like, and I'm actually feeling this with Westworld too right now because, you know, it's the same creator or some of the same creators as Lost and they keep on raising the stakes with the answer. And I think that that can be really dangerous for a show because I think that's where Lost failed is it kept on saying, oh no, we're going to have a big reveal. We're going to have a big explanation. We're going to have a big mystery solved and the higher you raise those stakes the easier it is to fall and i think that like westworld is doing that a little bit where there's you know conspiracy after conspiracy and layer after layer Uh, when does it end and i think what lynch is really good at if you can deal with the unknown is that he lets things just be unknown one thing we were talking about briefly just about that strange scene in episode one with the the monster and the box and the New York City skyscraper was how it felt like all of these horror elements were suddenly being introduced into the show where they hadn't been quite so overt before. What did you make of that? It's a different direction for the show. I think the show previously had been a bit more interested in the surrealism of this kind of dreamscapey town, whereas the new season really kind of suggests that these mysteries are everywhere and that these mysteries can affect anyone anywhere. I like how Lynch Lynch uses horror a little bit differently than I think most directors. Like usually when you say it's a horror show, you expect to be scared most of the time. Yeah, you that ex- whole like jump scare thing. Yeah, and you expect for the plot to basically deliver you to various scares. Lynch doesn't really do that. He do- He goes on other directions for a while. He'll take you to a soap opera. He'll take you to... Um, a mystery, and when he uses horror, it's always in a really small, really specific moment, and it is, I think, it's so much more affecting that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, if you think back to the original series, like the first time he went to the Red Room at the end of the first episode, it was just terrifying. Like, yeah. uh, did you sleep? No, yeah, especially after, like, when Killer Bob comes over the couch and kind of advances towards the camera i was like whoa wait oh my god and uh and yeah and then the red the red room it totally busts open any preconception you might have had about the show it suddenly says that the rules are completely different the way you thought they were and i think that what's great about how how these moments come into the show not all the time but it's not just that the rules are different than we thought it's that the rules are different than the characters thought. The characters yeah. are genuinely surprised by this. This is like a big moment for them. Yeah. Um, it reminds me also of like Mulholland Drive. There's that garbage man. Oh, yeah. Or the woman or whoever she is. And yeah, the, the characters are just kind of like walking along. But then the, it's, I think it's a combination of like the, the camera work and the soundtrack, the like the sound effects and just like the pure visual of like how deformed or dirty you know all the makeup and everything it's just like boom i mean that's kind of what he's trying to say with a lot of his work but also definitely with twin peaks which is that you know horrors everywhere mm-hmm. and we don't know how to predict it and it can come up at any time what are you going to keep your eyes on as the episodes continue and what advice would you give to somebody who 
wants to get into the show and like really enjoy it. I think that I'm going to be watching to see how the character of Cooper changes because I want to see, you know, how did the Black Lodge affect him as he regains some of his faculties? I don't think he's going to come out of it the same pie-loving man that he once was. Yeah. I really want to see what happens with Twin Peaks. I think that we're going away from Twin Peaks for a reason. So what happens when we come back to it? Why does Twin Peaks have this pull? Is there a mystery about the town itself? And for fans who are interested in getting into the show, I mean, I think that it's just wonderfully weird if you want to sit down for an hour and have your mind kind of played with and fooled around with a little bit and just go for sort of go for the ride. I think it's a great show for that. And if you like a lot of different genres, I think it's it's a great it's kind of a genre show, but it plays with so many different genres that there's something sort of for everyone. Yeah. And that's what's fun about it. Um, if you like mysteries, there's there. This this season has a lot of sci-fi kind of elements to it. Film noir, sort of small town, soap opera. It, it has like a little bit of everything. Synthesized and packaged up and kind of given to them in a in a form they didn't expect. But yeah, thanks so much for coming on the show and talking about it. Well, thanks for having me. Yeah. So thanks again to Robin for venturing into the weird world of Twin Peaks with me. We'll definitely want to get her back on the show in the near future. And that about does it for this episode. Be sure to check out kinetoscope.ca where we've posted a few new reviews recently, as well as a new edition of True North Streaming, our regular column on some of the latest and greatest additions to Netflix Canada. And from Toronto, I'm Robert Snow. Talk to you next time.